good morning, church. Uh, good morning, online crew as well. Uh, we are in the Greatest Adventure series. Uh, my name is Pastor Dustin, and um, i gifted with the privilege to bring the message this morning to y'all. Um, just want to piggyback kind of what uh, Frederick had mentioned. I- I've talked to him several times about what they're up against, and um, just a, a couple things. Um, the whole way down PG, the town is way down on the coast, down at the southern end, doesn't get hardly any tourism. Um, and so when he says forgotten, um, maybe few travelers go through that area. Um, also, I know Heart for Student Ministry, uh, as you might have heard, uh, but also helping young women and men in, in business and trying to launch some, some business for their town has been on his heart. And so um, just a couple specific things as you pray for them. Um, if you didn't pick up, uh, Frederick's working on driving through all the countries to get to Bailey's, and then family is going to fly, and so your prayers can go with them, um, and uh, maybe some candy and gum and, and things we need to send with Frederick for that long trip. So thinking of, of that road trip coming up. <clears throat> so this morning, we're going to jump into Judges. I'm going to read basically the whole story with you. Um, <clears throat> so it's, it's, it's Judges 4. Because I couldn't summarize it in just a couple words, I wanted to do it justice, so you're going to have to bear with me as we kind of work through it. Um, And also, I can't pronounce all the words correctly, so you're just going to have to work with whatever I come up with. Um, but, But this phrase I wrote down at the top of my sermon notes this week, in the time before kings... It sounds like it's right out of like a Narnia or Lord of the Rings movie, in the time before kings. So we just finished with Joshua, who we would call a tribal leader. And it's actually the book in the Bible before Judges. And then we go into Judges, who were leading Israel. And then later on, we get to kings. So when you think about Judges, um, the writer of Judges calls out 12 of them and brings attention to their life story and about how God uses them. So I put the the list up here for you. Um, I I would like to mention that we're going to talk about the fourth one mentioned in the book today, Um, but they kind of move from good to less than good, Um, from from being successful to not being very successful. So um, the the first four really stand out as some pretty incredible leaders. Gideon is kind of on the fence. There's some good, but then there's some also real flawed parts of his life. But then it sort of just turns into a mess after that. Um, with, with all kinds of different stories, and, and we'll get into them sometime. But, but as you look at the book, I just want you to know that that kind of is how it is set up. And we visit with the fourth one here. As you think of judges, don't think of courtroom. So they were in charge of making big decisions, big business decisions. Um, they would have sat in, in key places around uh, their territory. Um, Deborah would have been stationed near a big crossroad where all kinds of business was conducted. So they would have had sort of that judgy feel to them, but also it was beyond that. They were leaders of the people. They were respected. They were motivational. They were inspiring. And they were very much connected with the military. And so they would have been a military ruler. They would have had hero status. Um, Another literal word, instead of judges, you could honestly say the word chieftain. And so maybe uh, more recently, you, you might think of like a, a Native American group that would have a chief over a bunch of tribes. Like however they were respected and seen would have been these judges. Or even the Irish clans from Europe 
would have had a chief, a chieftain kind of overseeing everything. That, that's how we think of judges. So uh, Samson was definitely a well-known prophet with long hair. That, and there's another, long pro, uh, another prophet with long hair that you might not know so much about, and that was Deborah. And that's, we're going to spend a little time on her story this morning. She comes into the scene in an unlikely seat of leadership at a time when Israel was facing a terrifying technological advancement in world war. Uh, just kind of like David versus Goliath, there was a, a technological advancement in war at this time that Israel was facing. More on that in a minute, so hold on to that idea. Because she got to be the leader against that. Uh, the book of Judges, it, it's basically sensational story after sensational story. And the writer tells you everything. In fact, maybe for shock value. And there's all kinds of gore and blood in this book. I'm just going to tell you. Uh, it's like at the end of the year when the news cycle uh, maybe comes up with the top 100 stories uh, of 2021. Uh, well, this is like the top stories with heroes and drama and enemies all packed into judges. And that's how it's written. Um, so if you say, ooh, yuck, and gross during this, like I totally get it um, because it's all in here. In fact, I kind of appreciated judges in an odd way because when I was a camp counselor and I had middle school boys and I needed to come up with a devotional, like when I went to judges, I had everyone's attention. And then I had to figure out how to get to Jesus from that story. But uh, so I appreciate judges, maybe just for the raw gore that's in there. Um, I, I stopped Annie, uh, our children's director, before she went uh, on the Costa Rica trip. And I said, hey, when's the last time you taught on Ehud? You know, the prophet that plunges his sword into the fat king and the fat envelops the sword and the sword sticking out of the king's back. And she's like, I don't know if I've ever taught that story to kids. Um, well, I said, what about like Deborah? And we've got this tent stake in the head story coming up for Sunday. And she's like, yeah, I don't, I don't know if I've taught on that one either. Um, and I said, well, I think it'd be a great recruiting effort to be like, hey, come join our, youth, our student ministry team and we'll have you. Uh, teach the kids on these stories. And she didn't think that was a good idea. Um, She's saying it might be a little tamer. So it, it is gruesome. But my, my, I think the point of the gruesome is this. And I show you this image up here. Um, in fact, it might help you to take a red pen and, and draw this flag at the front of your judge's book in your Bible. Um, this book is a warning, straight up warning, that this is where sin takes you. So just like if you've been to the beach and you've seen this red flag, it's basically saying, danger, don't go swimming. The currents are going to take you out and you'll die. That's what the red flag means, uh, unless you're saved. Judges is basically the same thing. Like sin will take you. As you move away from God, uh, sin is going to take you out and you die. You're destroyed. Destroy destruction is what is going to come unless something saves you. And so um, the book of Judges is a big, big red flag of the depravity of man. And it's on full display, the dark side, the evil. And at the same time, if you dig deeply, there's these small, humble, faithful heroes of our faith that keep popping up. And God's plans, they still carry on. They're not snuffed out. And, and you'll see God, maybe frustrated at times with his people, still pour out mercy, still want to get them to a place of blessing. We're going to hit that in a moment. God still wants that, still the heart of God. 
And he creates these ways where there is no way. When it just looks impossible and a mess, there's a way that God still moves in the most unlikely people. So, so here's a cycle I want to give to you. Um, this plays out chapter after chapter in Judges. Um, you can almost build the chapters around this cycle. So sorry for the small print, but um, the, the big blue here at the top, I want you to start there, and that's blessing, that's peace. That's, that's, there was no oppression, there was no enemy hoarding over them. They weren't slaves, they were free, they, they had a spot of land, they, they weren't under uh, famine or disease at the time, so blessing. But then the people often will move to apathy, kind of like mm, complacency. Spir- uh, it's written down spiritual complacency. Then, then sinful acts get in there. So they act on the temptation, they act out of sin. And then, um, this is Old Testament, and so they really think about actions that are sinful. But I would say the New Testament, then Jesus just reminds us that it's more than just actions, but there's, there's intent, there's motive, there's heart. Okay? So, so I would say Jesus even expands that sinful acts as far as just like examining the darkness that can get us. Then we go to suffering out of the sinful acts. So there's suffering that takes place. Then there's a throw your hands up, I don't know what to do, cry out. And then God intervenes with redemption and he uses these prophets in different ways through this story. And so with this cycle, it's good to just stop and say, as I look back on my life, like what like cycle have I seen? Especially when I get far from God. Like what has happened in my life that kind of got me to the blue sinful acts, the yellow suffering and to a point where I'm like, man, I can't do this on my own. I'm not sure how to get out of this. I'm not sure how to fix this situation. We're, we're supposed to learn from our mistakes, right? Like you would think we would like learn and get better. But, but I bring up the last verse in all of Judges, the very last verse to show you that, that just kind of left to our own devices, we usually just spin in this cycle. The, the last verse is this. In those days, Israel had no king and everyone did as he saw fit. So they didn't, they didn't get better. Um, it just kind of says, like, we just get stuck. And we, we move far from God, and we go through this cycle of sinful acts and suffering. Aren't you, like, after, like, just looking at that and, and actually looking at the book of Judges, aren't you glad that Jesus shows up? Uh, because a lot of the Old Testament is this cycle over and over again. And we can't dig ourselves out. We need Jesus. So a question this morning, do you know what God uses to advance his work? As he works through that blue redemption part of the cycle, to fix what is broken, to bring beauty from ashes, sorry, it's orange, oh, the orange part there, to bring beauty from ashes, how does God work? Well, God usually works with someone's faith and their faithfulness. It made me stop and think of a few fish to feed 5,000. Or the small jar of oil that Dwight mentioned two weeks ago. Or a small stone and a slingshot with David versus Goliath. Or, or even against Satan himself, a young boy from a town, the people said nothing good comes from Nazareth. And so as we read Judges 4, keep these three things in mind. Number one, what cycle of, of you know, being stupid is on repeat in my life? 
if I look back and, and kind of get caught. What, what cycle is there? It's good to identify those moments. The second is, what step of faithfulness can I take right now? God wants to use our faith and our faithfulness. What's one step forward that we can take right now in that? And third, what's intimidating me that does not intimidate God? Remember I mentioned that there was a technological world wonder at this time? Well, they, the, the world was moving from Bronze Age to the Iron Age. And the Canaanites were in on the iron and the Israelites weren't. Okay, so this is what they were facing. Um, the Bible calls it out. There's 900 chariots. Um, they're not just regular chariots anymore, but now they're ironclad. They have iron on them. And Israel had foot soldiers. Also, the battle was going to be uh, fought in the plains where the Canaanites ruled and the Israelites were up in the hills. And they were going to have to descend down upon these 900 um, tanks, basically, if you want to get literal about it. So I... I think if you put yourself in their shoes, like they're shaking in their boots, right? Like, what are we going to do against these 900 chariots? I thought uh, closer to our time, you know, if you think about these world moments where one group has a technological advance over another, I thought of uh, the settlers coming to America with guns and gunpowder and the Native Americans having bow and arrows. Um, I grew up in Virginia, and uh, I used to hunt all over the woods behind my house because a civil war battle had happened on the land that we were connected to. And I thought for sure as a kid, I was finally going to find like some piece of the civil war and at least a round ball somewhere in the woods. Um, I never found anything, but like history had me right there. I'm like, I know I have to be able to find something. Um, in our town that I grew up in in Virginia, there's a, there's a restaurant that has a cannonball on the side of it, just to remind us of like times that have passed, um, and it's still there today. And, and in, in our school, we learned about the Civil War a lot. I mean, I was from Virginia. I think some people around me thought we, the South had won. They were so into the Civil War. And so um, we would study all this stuff, usually a lot of the, the Confederate Southern stuff. The, the USS Merrimack was the thing that that we had a picture of a lot of times. And if you know anything about that, that was a wooden ship that they covered in iron. So it was called an ironclad. It was one of the first um, that the world had ever seen. And so people could shoot at it and it would just bounce off. Then the North got one. And so if you read anything about the Civil War, it kind of goes back and forth with these two very invincible ships. Um, another th thought I had was World War II. At the beginning of it, um, the Germans had U-boats. So the Germans were the first to really have these amazing submarines that had torpedoes on the side of them, um, not something you wanted to get hit by. And so it haunted soldiers and uh, people on boats around the world for several years. Um, and if you, if you were on vacation this summer and you happened to go to Delaware, you would have seen maybe um, off the coast the big concrete round things. Those were lookout towers for U-boats, U standing for underwater boats. And so that would have been a technological advancement that people didn't know what to do with for a while. And so back to, back to Deborah, okay? She was not facing ironclad ships, not facing U-boats, but her people were facing these iron chariots. So reading from the Bible, chapter one, uh, I go back to chapter one real quick, verse 19. The Lord was with the men of Judah and they took possession of the hill country. So they're up in the hill, but they were unable to drive the people from the plains to the Canaanites, because they had chariots fitted with iron. Now, in Exodus 23, God, speaking to Moses, 
promised to send his angel before the Israelites and that they would overcome and even clear out the Canaanites. And like many, many chapters and books later, it still has not happened. And the Canaanites were, were a big pain in the butt with the uh, Israelites trying to have peace in their land. Later, Joshua would assure that there's going to be victory for the Israelites. It still hasn't happened yet. Those that followed the Lord, like we see with Deborah, understood what I think Paul would later capture in the New Testament. And I think it's an understanding that we have to keep in mind as Christ followers. And it's this, right out of Ephesians 6. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood and 900 chariots with iron on them, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of the dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil and heavenly realms. That there is a, a spiritual side of life that we so quickly forget about or dismiss. And it's so easy to get wrapped up in like these earthly mighty things. We'll come back to that. Iron, swords, guns, even death, they don't get the last word God does. The only reason that we're about to read about a female military leader charging into battle against all these chariots, and then she stops and predicts that a housewife will become this mission impossible, world-changing assassin, was like, why did she do that? We think that she was fully aware that God was going before them, that God had communicated with her to go, and that God was saying, you guys are going to be enough. Go, I'm with you. So Judges 4, verse 1. Again, the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord. Okay, most chapters start out like this in the Judges. Starts out in a bad spot, and, and that's what happened. Now Ehud was dead, um, a, a previous prophet that I mentioned. So the Lord sold him into the hands of Jabin, king of Canaan, who reigned in Hazor. Sisera, the commander of his army, was based in Hero, Hogo, because he had 900 chariots that I mentioned fitted with iron. And he had cruelly oppressed the Israelites for 20 years. They cried out to the Lord for help. Now, I need you to feel the pain happening here. Not just 20 years of oppression, but if you look at the history of exactly where this happens, they just lost Jericho. So that, that's a pretty big moment. And, and like in our Sunday school classes, like we talk about Jericho a lot. It's pretty amazing what happened there and that God allowed them to, to walk in and take over the city. Jericho was like the headwaters of the promised land. It was the key spot, the key territory. It was the beginning. So when they crossed over the Jordan and they went into Jericho and took over, they were entering the promised land. And right before this Deborah story, they lost it. You could feel like the pain of like, God, you delivered us and now we're totally abandoned. Like that's the kind of pain happening. So Deborah steps up to lead the people. And, and you might say, okay, Deborah, don't you mean like Dave or dude? Because this is a long time ago. Like it kind of takes me by surprise that there's like a female military leader leading the Israelite people. Well, we don't have a ton of info to go on like how this all happened. But to, to quote one commentary as I was studying it, uh, it was rare for a woman to do what she did, but there was no divine prohibition against it. Maybe Miriam, back in Exodus 15, paved the way with her leadership with the Israelites. And maybe 
Deborah is paving the way for Huldah, a prophet that comes into the picture in 2 Kings. As we look upon Deborah's leadership in Judges 4, we see that God blesses her for her trust, her faith, and that the people recognize God's hand upon her. She ends up doing a really good job as a leader and a prophet. She was an effective spokesperson for God. She gave commands to the army. Uh, It looks like her military leader respected her at some level, maybe wasn't always sure with her. We're going to see that in a moment. She didn't shy away from entering the war zone as a female. And as a result of her strong leadership, Israel once again found peace for another 40 years. So we're going to read, we're going to start with verse, uh, now verse 4 in chapter 4. And as I read this, just keep in mind, these are unique words because it captures probably the oldest passages that we see that portray a woman in battle. Now Deborah, a prophet, a wife of Lapidoth, was leading Israel at the time. She held court under the palm of Deborah between Ramah and Bethel in the hill country of Ephraim. And we know that was a key business crossroad that she kind of oversaw. And the Israelites went up to her to have their disputes decided. She sent for Barak, son of Abinam, from Kedesh in Naphtali, and said to him, The Lord, the God of Israel, our God, commands you, go, take with you 10,000 men of Naphtali and Zebulun and lead them to Mount Tabor. I will lead Sisera, who's the leader of the enemy. Okay, I'm going to get Sisera, the commander of Jabin's army, and his chariots and troops to the Kishon River and give him into your hands. We're going to win. Barak says to her, if you go with me, I will go. But if you don't go with me, I won't go. Now, if Barack was a major league baseball pitcher, the headline might read, Barack balked. He's stuck. He hesitates. What's he going to do next? I mean, maybe he thinks the idea is crazy, or maybe he's just seen that, that God has been blessing Deborah, and he's not sure about this whole thing, but the only way he could possibly win as if that blessing came with Deborah and with him. As we look at Deborah, um, she's facing immense pressure and challenge. It's going to be very unusual for her gender to lead this charge, lead this army. Also, her lead military commander lacks confidence in her at this moment. And, oh, by the way, don't forget about the 900 iron-sided chariots down there in the valley. So picking up verse nine, certainly I will go with you, said Deborah. So she's willing to put skin in the game and go as well. But because of the course you are taking, the honor will not be yours. For the Lord will deliver Sisera into the hands of a woman. So just quickly reading this, I always just thought that that meant like Deborah. But it's actually another woman in the story that we haven't met yet who becomes like this mission impossible assassin. So we'll get to that in a moment. So Deborah went to Barak to Kadesh, where Barak summoned Zebulun and Naphtali, and the 10,000 men went up under his command. Deborah also went up with him. So they were all out on the battlefield. Deborah has been tested, and she's like, let's go. Barak has been tested, and he's like, why don't we stay home? These two people tested in different responses. It made me think back 
1894, and I wasn't around then. But as I read about our denomination, the Brethren in Christ, there's something that, interesting that happened in 1894. At that time, there would have been tons of small churches all around the U.S. and Canada that were connected under the Brethren in Christ umbrella, and they would have met for general conference every two or four years. And they were trying to decide big things together at that time. Well, something that was new that some of the other denominations were doing was missions. And the Brethren in Christ hadn't really resourced that area. Um, I don't know how many people were thinking about that uh, as an opportunity for the church. Uh, You know, just kind of leaving the bubble and moving out might have been a little bit of a newer idea for some people. But a woman in 1894 stood on the floor of the conference and said, I've got this burning just passion to go into the streets of Chicago and set up a mission and do it under the Brethren in Christ umbrella. And um, they came around her and they were like, yeah, let's, let's think about missions and let's try this urban movement into Chicago. Four years later, two women followed her lead, came onto the floor and said, we have this heart for Africa. We think we should go. We think God's calling us to go. And so they also had a team rally around them and they were able to get on boats and go to Africa, really never come back and set up a mission in Africa. Um, We're actually connected to it still today. It was in the area of Rhodesia, which um, is now called Zimbabwe. And because of that movement out, we now, Brethren in Christ, are connected to 23 countries in the world. Um, whereas it was just us in Canada back in this day. We're also connected to the Zimbabwe mission because um, it still is a really popular mission. Um, I actually talked to them about trying to take a team over to do sports ministry in their area, but they're connected to John Hopkins and they're a leading malaria institute in the world and also did a lot with the AIDS crisis. And so um, because of the passion, because of the leading that those women had 100 years ago, it helped the church move forward. And so whether God calls a man or a woman, like when you feel like God's passion burning with you and, and, and the opportunity to go ahead and step out, even though it's scary and you're not sure how it's all gonna work out, like you get to lean in that or lean away from it. And in this situation, Deborah's leaning in while Barak leans back. Okay, so connecting to Sisera. What does Sisera do, the leader of the army? Well, he lines up what he, those 900 chariots, right? He's got to get things ready because the Israelites are coming. Now, keep in mind Ephesians 6. I just want to throw this out because I think as Christians, we need to be reminded, again, for our struggles, not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of the dark world. And so there's a spiritual side to things that 900 chariots don't just, they're not just the last word. Okay, Sisera summoned from Hero Hago on the Kishon River all of his men, and he got his 900 chariots all ready to go. Then Deborah said to Barak, go, this is the day. Like, she's heard from God, let's go, this is it. The Lord has given Sisera into your hands. Has not the Lord gone ahead of you? So Barak went down Mount Tabor with 10,000 men follow him down into the plains, the area that they're not as good in fighting with. As Barak's advance, the Lord routed, took care of Sisera and all of his chariots and army by the sword. And Sisera got down from his chariot, climbed out of his tank, 
the thing that he had put his hope in and fled on foot. Now you would think story over, right? God humbled the proud. Sisera is defeated. He's on the run. It should be all over. But remember, Deborah had prophesied. She had said, hey, listen, Barak, if you're not willing to, someone else is going to be the hero of the story. It's going to be another female. So let's see what, so what happens next. So uh, verse 17, not a man was left. They were, they, they were, the Canaanites were wiped out. Sisera, meanwhile, fled on foot to the tent of Jael. That's the next female in the story. The wife of Hebor, the Kenite. Because there was an alliance between Jabin and Heber's family. Okay? So maybe his tanks failed, right? The chariots failed, but the earthly alliance won't, is what he was hoping for. Now, Deborah, the female leader of Israel, and now we have Jael, the chance to be like a lead assassin in this war, the most unlikely assassin that, that I can really come up with. What, what we know about Jael, well, is this. Her and her husband were, were kind of living, it looks like they lived apart from the Kenites, but not necessarily with the Israelites, kind of doing their thing, like riding the fence. And it looks like um, probably had alliances with both groups. And so it's very possible that God may have enabled her to know um, that whoever blessed Israel in this moment would in turn be blessed. Or maybe it was just simply uh, trying to repay a favor to Deborah, Deborah or Barak. But for whatever reason, she was moved to have faith to go with the Hebrew God. So Jael... So this is how it plays out. Jael went to meet Sisera and said to him, come, my Lord, come right in. Don't be afraid. So she entered her tent and she covered him with a blanket. I'm thirsty, he said. Please give me water. She opened up a skin of milk, gave him a drink and covered him up. So we get this idea of like, uh, I know he asked for water. She gave him milk. But this idea of like, I'm, I'm going to give you this safe, comfy place. Just go to sleep. And, and that's the image that we have is that he did. He went to sleep. But Jael, Heber's wife, picked up, sorry, stand in the doorway of the tent. He said, if someone comes by and asks you, is anyone there? Say no. But Jael, Heber's wife, picked up a tent peg and a hammer and went quietly to him while he lay fast asleep. Now you may say, why the tent peg? Why the hammer? Keep in mind, she would have probably been in charge of tearing down her tent and putting it back up, tearing it down and putting it back up like all year long as they moved around. Okay, so, so very skilled with a tent peg <laughs> as far as putting up the house, okay? So that's, that's where we get this idea of like, like she had very little, she didn't have a sword. Um, she probably would have ha been in like a woman's tent. They didn't have weapons in that uh, tent. And so um, she kind of just used what she had. So here's the yuck, ooh, gross. Okay, she drove the peg through his temple into the ground, okay? Pretty violent and he died. But then Barak came in pursuit. So Barak shows up and Jael goes out and says, come, I will show you the man you're looking for. So, he, so she definitely knew what was going on. Okay, so he went with her and there lay Sisera with a tent peg through his temple. He's dead. On that day, God subdued Jabin, king of Canaan, before the Israelites. That something that hadn't happened at all. That was prophesied to happen eventually. And it happened at the hand of Deborah and Jael. So who predicted the foot soldiers overtaking 900 iron tanks of war? Well, Deborah heard from God. Who predicts mission impossible for the housewife, the, the, the newly uh, 
assigned assassin, Deborah, heard from God that it would happen. Who was faithful here? Um, Deborah and Jael. Who had skin in the game? I mean, they risked it all. If it backfired, they were dead. Deborah, Jael. What weapons were needed to free a people from 20 years of oppression? A tent stake. God works in some crazy, mysterious ways. Who defeated the top military ruler, maybe of the world at that time? A housewife. And and Jael, faced with a choice of who to side with, maybe moved from faithless that day to faithful. To, okay, I'm going to side with God. Maybe never considered this before. I'm going to side with God. It, It really made me think of Pilate's wife in the New Testament who, you know, said to her husband, um, kind of have a bad feeling about this. I think that, like, I think Jesus is for real. I think you shouldn't hurt him. You know, sort of that moving from faithless or maybe hasn't considered God before to, to faithful. Okay, I'm going to side with God on this. And, and so maybe, maybe you're here today and, and that's you. You're, you're like, okay, I haven't really considered much about God before. Like the, the spiritual apathy, that, that would have been me. Okay, I really haven't done anything with that before. Not prayed, haven't read the Bible, haven't been a part of a church or a believer's group at all. And so maybe today is that step toward that. Okay, I want to side with the God here in scriptures. And any of us would be willing to talk and pray with you about that. I mentioned Pilate's wife. Another person in the Bible, maybe similar, would be Rahab. She was not an Israelite. She was in Jericho, helped the spies out. She wasn't known to be a faithful follower of God, but she gets credited for helping God's people with a brave, brave act. And also, with Jael, you get what she used. She she used what she had. And I think that's us. Like, God uses what we have to bring to the table. So as you just think about your own faith this morning, if you hold up a mirror, I mean, maybe it's JL that you see, you know, moving from, from not really part of the game to like, okay, I want to I side up with God. Or maybe it's Barack and, and you're holding the mirror up and you're saying, I'm balking, I'm hesitating, kind of stuck right now. Or maybe it's Deborah. I'm, I'm about to walk into my calling. Okay, I, I think God's, God's saying, let's go. Okay, could be like Frederick about to get into a car and head south to Belize. Like, okay, here we go. I'm on mission. This proved to be a breaking point in the history. So if you look at the history, this, this is when it broke. Okay, what, the promise that was made back in Exodus 23 came into completion thanks to the leadership of Deborah and the willingness of a housewife. Now, I won't tell you what happens after this in, in chapter six, um, but if you were to guess that it would repeat, and the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord, you would be right. So the, the being stupid cycle is sure to kick back in and happen again. So now with the Old Testament, it can kind of get dark and somewhat depressing at times, but I, I want to key in on the word blessing for a moment, because I think it's good as a Christian to stop and just think about what God wants, what, what God's hope is, what what are those moments where you feel like God's world touching yours? And I think it's in that blessing piece of the sin cycle. So up at the top left, that blue part, it said blessing. And um, I don't think, as you look at the Old Testament, it's not about they won and they got a bunch of gold. Like that wasn't what was referred to as blessing. 
or even taking over a town. That wasn't really what blessing was. Blessing is when they had peace. And in, in, in the Old Testament, there's a word shalom. And, and it doesn't mean just not war, okay? It doesn't mean, if you have shalom in your home, it doesn't mean just we're not fighting. It means more than that. Shalom means something that is complete and lacks nothing. And so as you look around your life, it could be, could be these really small moments where like things are just like complete lacking nothing. It could be a sunset. And you're like, okay, tomorrow I know it's going to be crazy, but for right now, like I'm just going to sit in this blessing of shalom. It could be a cup of coffee in the morning while everything's quiet. It could be, you know, with my family. It could be a dinner that we're all enjoying. The food is great and we're all getting along and talking and sharing. It could be that. Um, it, it's kind of that, like, Christmas spirit, uh, you know, at Christmas that you're hoping for. Everyone comes together and gets along. It, it could be a hug after a long absence. You know, maybe you're hugging a person or maybe you're hugging a dog. But, but like, it's like everything is kind of put back together. Or, or in a marriage, it's like meeting eye to eye. Even if, like, whatever you're about to do together is going to be hard, like, we're on the same team together. It's that moment. Um, it might be paying off debt and being like, that was broken, that was not good. But, like, we work so hard to come back and make this happen. Uh, maybe it's asking for forgiveness and the person, like, looking at you in the eyes and being like, yeah, you got it. I'm giving, it, giving that forgiveness to you. Um, the things that I'm mentioning aren't really of this world. I can't put a dollar to them. I can't, it's beyond this world. It's something that taps into that Ephesians 6. That there's a spiritual nature about our existence that's so easy to forget sometimes. I think God invites us into that and says, there's a shalom that I don't want you to miss out on. Sure, you get it down the road in eternal life, but I want you to know it now. Job 5 talks about like the tent is secure and you will examine your home and miss nothing. Solomon completes the temple and he brought shalom into it. Isaiah looks forward to the Messiah in Isaiah 9 and says he will be the prince of shalom. Paul just calls out Jesus and says Jesus himself is our peace. I give you these final words from Judges one more time. Just think about the little red flag, a little warning. In those days, Israel had no king. Everyone did as he saw fit. And life can still be that way. And so when I say like, hey, Jesus is my king, that's my reaction to that. That's my, yup, everybody kind of serves someone. I choose Jesus. The people who were in need of a savior because they were in that being stupid cycle over and over and over again, that's us, it's our people, we get to choose Jesus. Jesus is that helping hand to take us out of that cycle. And so I'll leave you with these words of Jesus from John 10.10. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy, and the author of Judges just writes all about it. The destruction and the dark stuff that comes out. But Jesus says, listen, I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. Judges, it, it is hard to read. And sometimes I don't know how to make a Sunday school lesson on all the stories. Because uh, our dark sides are revealed and like the tendency to fall into sin is real. But if we dig deeply, we're gonna see a God with an un, 
unrelenting love and patience beyond imagination. He, he makes a way where there is no way. The humble end up defeating the mighty to the glory of God and, and that God is willing to use us in the most creative ways and the littlest of things. So I think of the image with the fishermen and Jesus. Jesus comes on the scene in the New Testament and, and says, listen, I need you to drop your nets and follow me. And there's this great adventure that follows. And when, when you're faced with that, and maybe the disciples were faced with it, you've got to ask, is it worth it? Like, this is my life. This is what I know. And you're asking me to drop it. Like, that's my economy. That's my like livelihood. And you're asking me to make this big change and follow you, Jesus. Is it worth it? Is it worth my time giving? Is it worth my time serving? Is it worth my efforts to speak up for those who can't speak up for themselves? Maybe a different question that I leave you with is, instead of is it worth it, maybe ask where is the blessing of peace? Where is that shalom? The one thing the world can't produce, the one thing that 900 chariots couldn't preserve, the one thing that can't be manufactured, the one thing that can't be sold, where is that peace? Because in following the Lord, the blessing of peace can only be found. Why don't you go ahead and stand and let's sing this last song together.